0: Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Real Science Podcast. I'm the host, Josh McIntyre. So this week I've got some stories on sperm donors and the doctors who handle IVF, which is interesting and I'll get into it in a sec. Um, I've also got a story on kind of the issues around genetic testing and genetic sequencing and stuff like 23andMe and kind of what it means for the possible future um, of genetic testing in regards to... If you take a 23 me test, or you take some kind of a DNA test today, get the results back, say, next week, which would be amazing. And then it comes up and says, you've got a gene variant here, but no big deal. And then in three years' time, find out that actually that gene variant means that you're more likely to have some kind of cancer, say, ovarian cancer or lung cancer or something like that. But they didn't know that when you first took the test. What does that mean? Are the doctors responsible for that should you be updated on that how she will go about contacting you so that's an interesting story as well um, and finally I've also got a story about a new body farm that's potentially opening up in the UK um, and what that means and why people are kind of against it you know, let will start out with the, the first one and I think the first two are a bit related but I'll get into that in just a second um, so the first one is, is a story about this woman, her name is Eve Wiley. She lives in a small town in Texas. It's called Center, which is a funny name for a town in Texas. But it seems there's a lot of towns in Texas with silly little names. Um, either way, she was born in 1987, um, so she's about 31 years old now. Um, and it talks about how when she was growing up, her mom was a school nurse. And at one point, she was flicking through her mom's emails, which you know, whatever. Uh, Maybe shouldn't be allowed, but obviously she got on there somehow, and she starts seeing some emails about um, IVF, or in vitro fertilization, and she sees a few of them, doesn't really think too much about it, and then eventually she clicks on one, and she comes to find out that she is actually a result of IVF, um, and that her parents were unable to conceive her, um, and they'd been trying to get pregnant, and eventually they decided to go down the route of IVF. And they find out that um, not only that is she a result of IVF, um, she finds out that her father who had raised her isn't actually her biological father. And the story goes on to say that her biological father passed away, I think when she was relatively young, um, but that there was this person who was donor 106. Um, and eventually she gets old enough, I think she says when she was about 18 or 19, she sends off a letter um, to the sperm bank where the donor came from and so she was again born in texas kind of near the louisiana border Um, but the sperm donor itself he actually lived in california so she sent a letter off and asked for some information on him and the um, sperm bank actually agreed to then pass the letter on to donor 106 and after that they actually got in contact and turns out he was a very nice person they first met over skype Um, She was just had an immediate connection to him. um, And she was able to then contact him. He had his own family as well in California. And she um, actually watched his daughters grow up. And when Eve actually later got married, the donor, this donor, uh, whose name was uh, Steve, um, actually officiated her wedding, um, again, because her father passed away. And so huge part and just this guy who was just a sperm donor played a huge role in her life and she thought you know it's it's a it's a messy story it's maybe a bit complicated but realistically things have worked out for the best um and you know she couldn't she would not they really have it any other way well the interesting thing comes obviously we all know that dna testing has been around for a little while so 23me ancestry.com um, family tree all those different websites and stuff like that that offer this genetic testing so the story goes on to say that she basically, you know, started to get interested. And in at first she wasn't really too worried about it. But then she thought, you know, maybe he's fathered other children around. Maybe he's part of, um, you know, because he was a sperm donor, maybe there's other half siblings she has, maybe she would have an immediate connection with them or, you know, it'd be nice to know who they were. So she goes ahead and does one of these DNA testing. I think it says she does um, 23andMe, though, I'm not sure. And uh, the testing kit, you know, out sends it away she even gets um her the donor donor 106 steve to do a test as well and it comes back and they're not related um she comes back and the only match she has is someone else in east texas someone in her town but not the donor 106 not steve that she knew um so she starts doing more research and she's pretty devastated and very confused by this and what happens is eventually she contacts someone who is um shows up on her on her family tree dna or her dna match that's someone else that lives somewhere in texas and she contacts him and he says oh i've only got one egg one uncle and he lives in east texas in the same town where the ivf clinic was and when she comes to find out is it kind of just hit her all at once that the donor 106 isn't her biological father. We've already associated that, but what probably is is that the fertility dodger who ran the IVF facility is her do- is her biological father. So here's the thing is that this story has played out in a couple different ways. There's another article I read um, a few weeks ago, which I'll see if I can pull back up at some point and put in the link to the comments or put in a link to the show. Um, but... This has happened a few times, and the or Eve, rather, in the story um, contacted the doctor, and he gives an explanation as to why this might have happened. Now, the other story that I know of happened in the Netherlands, where the fertility doctor has since passed away, but he basically fathered, I think, about 60 children or 70 children. So that's a high number, um, and a lot of these children are you know there was supposed to be ivf and it was supposed to be between their father and their mother right but something for some reason online the fertility doctor switched in his own semen into this into the mix and fathered these people so now all these people have these half brothers and the same kind of thing where they have started taking these genetic tests and they get back and find out they have a whole bunch of half cousins and then they start figuring out kind of where everything points towards importance towards this one fertility doctor So, like i said in this case um eve contacted the doctor because she was you know in shock and was a bit confused and was kind of like you know what the fuck's going on and she um you know contacted him sent him a letter with a very detailed note explaining kind of what happens explaining out her case and asking for just basically kind of what the hell what does this mean um and how could this happen she's also like i said found out about other stories um that have been identified as offspring, which I shouldn't laugh about. Um, but it's just a crazy, crazy thing because you have to imagine these people that were running these fertility clinics and maybe doing this probably thought no big deal. These people wanted a child. They wanted a child. They wanted a baby. They still raised the baby. It's still the mother's child, at least. They agreed to have a sperm donor. So then I'll just mix mine in, and anyways. And then we're all fine and everybody gets to have a kid and it's all good. But Here's where it gets a bit weird. The doctor responded to her letter, um, and he basically said that he he was having problems getting an actual match. So he was taking um, eggs from the mother, obviously, and mixing them with the donor sperm. Um, but then they still weren't working for some reason or another. And when they weren't working, he went and talked to one of his... um his mentors about what was happening and basically he was told through a mentor that sometimes if you mix multiple samples you can actually get better results now why that would happen I'm not entirely sure I mean it seems like basically one sperm isn't matching up with the eggs so maybe the other sperm is um, there's definitely some other proteins and stuff in semen that would maybe have something to do with it with infertility we don't know heaps about infertility and I'm not sure what other roles Um, the other proteins would would play Um, but it seems odd to suggest that two different samples would work better clearly one sample is going to work better than the other Um, but again it's it's complicated and apparently also the the doctor says that he asked um, or has spoke with Eve's mother about doing this about mixing in another sample and that if he did that that it might work better and apparently she says yes although she Thoroughly denies ever having a conversation like this um, and was very adamant about the fact that any donor sample needs to come from somewhere out of state um, and definitely not someone in the same community because, um, God forbid, then Eve grow up and end up dating someone that she's half related to without knowing it, um, which is a very valid concern. But yeah again so this this doctor talked to his mentor and he was told to maybe mix in another sample but instead of just going and grabbing out, like i don't know donor 107 or you know donor 250 out of the freezer because he runs a fertility clinic there's probably other donors there he mixes in his own sample and then oh my god the egg is um is inseminated and then they can start to proceed on with the ivf treatment and eve is born This is the guy's explanation as to how this worked and how this happened. Seems a little sketchy, seems a little bit odd. Again, he would have had other samples to take from. Again, I don't understand the reasoning. I don't think they did either. And again, this was 30 years ago. So he has said that his actions were ethical at the time. And, you know, it's hard to look back on actions taken 30 years ago with the lens of today and come out with the same kind of response that maybe would have happened then, which you have to give him some credit for you know things do change things do progress and looking at things in the past like some old movies and stuff like that you know it it's hard to see how some of them were as good as they were then and look at them now and find them very troubling but again that's not playing with human life and um yeah it seems like a very Irresponsible thing to do again. There would have been other other samples there And again, the mother was very clear from her recollection that she did not want a donor from in town So again, I I guess I'm bringing this up because I think it's it's a fascinating story and again It seems to be happening a lot more where these fertility clinics or these fertility uh, doctors were in a position To use their own sperm and they seem to have done this, you know, again, he's not the only person um, it doesn't sound like he's done this a lot from from the story reading that at least other people haven't uploaded their da- Their dna yet to find out if she has a bunch of half siblings or anything yet Um, but there's definitely other stories that are around of the same kind of thing happening uh constantly And it's just just showing up and I, I was to have to assume that there's a handful of um OB-GYNs that are sitting out there like just Probably worrying to death that uh their samples might get identified, or that someone might figure out that they started—they were responsible for a lot of children being born. So there's got to be a couple of people out there sweating and waiting to hear that, because it sounds like from him talking to his mentor about doing that, this, this might be somewhat of a common practice, or maybe not common, but definitely more than, than one or two isolated cases. If if he was suggested to do this by an older mentor, um, so yeah, it's just a crazy, crazy story, and I'm sure there'll be more and more things published about it in the, the coming months and coming years um but with that i'm going to move on to the next one which is about uh, medical dna sequencing and kind of lawsuits and legal questions around it so like i was saying before it's it's weird because people are doing these genetic testing but and i tweeted this article out as soon as i read it so it's, it's from a few weeks ago now or it's published on april 26th um and it's published in science magazine um but yeah, it's, it's, it's strange because our identification, our knowledge around genetics is, is constantly expanding. And to suggest that it's not changing would be irresponsible. So, I mean, we know we've, we've got you know the, the human genome, which is still constantly being updated. It's still not technically complete, but it's about as complete as it's really going to get. There's certain sections of DNA that are just difficult to read um, because of some of the structures around them. It's difficult to separate out. Um, some of the proteins that help keep the dna together Um, it's also just difficult because also our dna isn't necessarily the same in every cell Um, i know we're taught to believe that but it's not entirely true Um, yeah so it's just complicated and again knowing what individual base changes when you can have a single nucleotide being different and resulting in, you know, a wholly different operation of a whole gene of a protein, and then that having a knock-on effect to whole systems within cells, and that causing cancer, especially um, in various cases, or causing other um, genetic diseases and stuff like that, knowing what every single protein can do, or knowing what every single, you know, every time that one single nucleotide is important is, a lot of data that we just don't have yet and some of it we just haven't found like basically the case studies people just haven't done the research so like I said there's also a lot of these orphan diseases um, where you know maybe 500 people in the whole world get them so nobody's doing research and nobody's even necessarily identified some of them as a disease yet or is trying to do anything about them like um, different mitochondrial diseases and stuff like that so nobody's even attempted to to treat them or identify them yet so if that's the case you could very easily go and take a genetic test and come back and it says, look, you've got maybe an increased uh, risk for lung cancer or something like that, which can mean something and, and might not, depending on kind of other factors, obviously other environmental factors, where you live, kind of what you do to protect yourself um, if you're exercising often and stuff like that, right? That'll just change your, your chances of developing cancer in, in the near future or in your lifetime. But what happens if you do take a genetic test and it comes back and says you have no risk of cancer at all? First off, that's amazing because everyone has a risk of cancer and there's almost undoubtedly going to be a lot of spots that are going to show up in your genome. But say it does. And then say new data comes out in five years that suggests that actually some of the variants you have mean that you have a 90% chance of getting some kind of a skin cancer or some kind of an ovarian cancer or god forbid some kind of um you know liver cancer or something like that then what happens do they update your your test results now i know some like 23andme and family tree and stuff like that 23andme specifically is the only ones that are fda approved to make those kinds of diagnoses and tell tell you about them and they will keep your data on hand and you can go back and look at it afterwards and they things will update because there's different stuff about and there's a whole whole issue around um the kind of where your ancestry is from the 23 me will update that consistently and there's there'll be times when it, someone will say they'll get a test result back and they'll be like they will be one percent um uh african origin or something like that and then if you go back and look at it a year later that one percent is disappeared and it turns out the one percent really doesn't mean anything it's just kind of a variety um that you have certain epitopes that seem to represent those populations but populations don't work that way but Again, that's slightly a different answer, but they just suffice it to say that they will update your results. And so I assume there might be some update to results if you go back and look at them there. And maybe if you're keeping on top of them and you want to let them keep your DNA so you can constantly see that, maybe that's kind of the the method moving forward um, that if you upload your DNA to a database or have someone like 23 Me read it, um, then they can constantly update it to you, and then it's kind of on you to go back and look at that data and analyze it and see kind of what's going on. Um, maybe that's that's how we move forward with this. But we'll see. The, other, the issues that this article is specifically talking about, which, again, I'll put a link to in the um, description, um, is talking about how what happens if someone comes in and you're trying to diagnose them so this is for doctors specifically what do you do so maybe you do a genetic test but it comes back and says nothing's there and you're trying to figure out what's going on you're trying to solve their you know their diagnosis you're trying to figure out how to treat them better but then again in three years new new data comes out even if it's you know two months down the line new data comes out that says that you know actually this genetic sequence that they have actually is important Well, first off, how do you do that? How do you, as a a care provider, deal with that? And what do you do as a standard of care? Do you have to go back out, reanalyze all this data constantly? So you've got to keep a huge genetic database that's constantly up to date and helping people identify, you know, constantly reviewing all the literature so you can identify these genetic variants. And then if you do identify it, do you then have to go back out and help the person or tell them what's going on so you have a treatment? You know, ideally, doctors want to treat their patients and want to help people where and when they can. So if that's the case, if we're going with that's the case, then you have to reach out and keep in contact with all these people. But if they change their phone numbers, how much how much work do you have to do to try and get in contact with your patients again? And it's it's just this whole mess of kind of the lawsuits that are, almost definitely going to be coming in the next few years in regards to kind of what's going on with this genetic sequencing um, ability and kind of how people are going to be able to um, to basically if they want to be able to sue their doctors because then what's the duty of care in a doctor's position or a physician's position like that Um, what are reasonable steps for them to take to recontact patients and actively then treat patients and how are they able to then you know how clinically relevant is it for that information to be used so yeah, i think it's just a really it's, it's a crazy story i'm not i don't think i'm doing the story quite um quite justice but i would recommend reading it if you have any interest in in kind of genetic testing and kind of the bounds of, of where it's going to push in the next few years and kind of how this is going to really change the landscape i think genetic testing is going to be continue to be huge for a long time and as people get better at it and more Kind of companies keep coming into the space because there's all these startups that are coming in and really trying to push the boundaries on on what's possible and if as more con- companies get fda approved or you know approved in other countries to actually give people information about their um the genetic status and their status in regards to different cancers and for different possible diseases there's going to be a lot of questions there but i think the model is probably going to really push towards something like Twenty Three Me where they keep your data on hand and it's up to you to go back and check constantly. And so there's going to be large databases out there, which then um, the privacy advocates are going to get all over me because if you want to do that or if you're interested in doing that, people are really worried about what happens to your data there. And we know the 23 Me is working with Smith, and Klein and selling them data to use um, for doing genetic research, for potentially developing new, new drugs and stuff like that. Um, and so... If people are really worried about privacy and that whole privacy debate on what to do with DNA is a very complicated one But I think some people are just really fear-mongering a lot um, And realistically there just needs to be a push for new laws so that insurance companies and, um, and Employers really won't have access to it. And they won't be able to potentially You know keep you from doing a job or, or put you into different uh, insurance bracket based on your own genetic ability but the insurance companies are constantly pushing for basically tailored um, medicine, and I think there's something really to that. That if you can do your genetics, have your whole genome sequence um, and checked, then you can have tailored medicine based on what's going on. Especially if you've got a really rare disease, like I said, like I was talking about one of these orphan diseases, or you get some kind of condition that doesn't really connect to other things and doesn't really make sense having your genome read by someone who knows what's going on and the ability to constantly go over it with with um with the right kind of researchers means you can have an enormous amount of information about kind of how your body responds to the world and actually you know maybe can tell you what kind of diet would work better for you and you know things like that so there's a lot of information that can be gained from this um but it yeah it's definitely going to be an interesting few years um with genetic testing the way it is and uh with things that are going to happen because things are moving quite fast and it's difficult for legislatures and stuff to keep up but with that happy note let's move on to dead bodies all right so dead bodies so there's it's uh this is in in nature um the scientific journal and it's just uh, on their website um but it's an exclusive and it's from published on the 2nd of May So the UK is to open the first body farm for forensic research. So what's a body farm? So a body farm is basically where you get people who have donated their body to science quite often They will donate their body directly to a body farm um, Knowing exactly what's gonna happen to it or loved ones will um, People put this in their will and it's there's a whole It's really interesting too um, I went to a talk uh, about a year ago two years ago um, with someone who was setting up and establishing the, the first body farm in Australia, which is uh, near Sydney and She was saying that when they've got people who donate their bodies She's like they've actually got huge numbers of people who try and donate their body But the whole thing is it's about a matter of timing and kind of who that person is as well because they're setting up um, experiments for uh, de- Testing different things. So uh, this gets a bit gruesome Um but basically, if, if, if when police find a, a body out in the woods or they find a body in a suitcase or something like that that a killer has left behind, someone is trying to hide, you need to know kind of how that person got there and ideally how long they've been there, which is really difficult to figure out past about 24 hours because you can take kind of body temps in the first little while and depend it on kind of environmental factors, obviously just temperature, outside temperature, you can start to kind of figure out, how long someone's been there but if someone's been there for weeks or months or even years it's very difficult to establish how long they've been there really very precisely at all you can get within a couple of weeks after a couple weeks you can start to figure out oh, they've maybe been here two three weeks but it gets difficult and that if you can figure out how long someone's actually been there you can really nail down more of a timeline and actually will help you identify in suspects and help you deal with people um lying to you about their whereabouts and and giving you false alibis and stuff like that you can really actually nail down who the killer is and get hard evidence on on what happened and how they got there so that's really important and what body farms do is allow you to basically study a body as it decomposes in different environments so again the first body farm that was ever established was in knoxville tennessee and it was established in 1981 and there weren't any other body farms for, I think, almost 20 years before other ones started open up in the U.S. And I think there's only about six in the U.S. But what's really interesting as well about body farms is that these different sites are actually very um, variable. And so that a body farm in Knoxville, Tennessee, will tell you how bodies decompose around there and kind of that latitude. But if you find a body up in Washington State... The same, same kind of things don't actually occur. They're very different in how the bodies decompose because of the different environments, because of the different temperatures, different animals, and so forth. Hence, whether there's a body farm in Sydney, hence whether there's body farms in other places. But this will be the first one that's opened up in the UK. And in the article, they talk about how it's, it's really needed to better understand how kind of bodies will decompose there because, it's, again, it's very specific to a certain area based on local environment and stuff like that and local animals and stuff as well. So the other thing in body farms as well is they will put things, put bodies near like different ant mounds or different insects to then see how they will interact with the body. And also they will test soil samples at different, different points farther away from the body as well, because something that's constantly strange to me, but, um, but I think is very interesting is the fact that basically once a person dies, you're now biohazardous waste. Now, that makes sense when you're thinking about like things leaving a hospital, though it is still a bit odd, because to say someone has you know uh, their pancreas removed or something like that, that is actually biohazard, and that's why they most often won't let you take it with you, because they can't just let biohazard walk out the front door, because who knows what you're going to do with it, liability, stuff like that. So then they put it into a biohazard bag, which will then often get um, incinerated and destroyed. Now, over to Labs, that's pretty common. We would have samples tissue samples come in and you try and save them in the freezers um and like minus 80 freezers and so forth and stuff like that but once we're done using them they go into biohazard bag they're incinerated and destroyed but with a human person when you're putting them in a casket that's why in the us for sure and i think most other places as well now the casket has to then go into a concrete box which is then completely sealed and that's so that basically the human juices and stuff like that don't leak out into the environment because when they do, they're actually considered biohazard and then it's actually a huge pain. There's different um, things that come out that are actually really can be damaging to the environment that if they weren't coming out of a person would actually be a huge issue. And it's it's interesting to think about because then you think about eating a steak or something like that. And effectively that's the same, but if it was a human steak, it'd be biohazard or cannibalism. Um, but yeah, it's it's I I find it I find it constantly odd because people would bury cats and dogs and stuff in the backyard, but under under most laws, um, doing that with a human, it'd be very illegal and very difficult to get away with, um, I think, most places. Um, anyways, moving on from that and my weird little diatribe. Um, yeah, people are, are obviously up at arms about um, this body farm, and it's again, it's interesting. So the whole point of them is to increase um, our understanding of forensic science and to help catch killers when you find a body somewhere out in you know, in a forest or something like that or in a bog or something like that and trying to help understand how long they've been there and kind of how to better identify what's going on. And, and if you can study that slowly over time, take samples at different points in time. Yeah, so you can really kind of age how long a body's been there and kind of what's, what's going on with it. Um, but like I said, there's people who are um, very much against body farms. And the reason basically is they kind of just feel icky about it. so they they talk about how it's a grim purpose and they don't think it's incredibly necessary. They don't think that, you know, the information we've gained from them is incredibly useful because they say there's a low number to really give any kind of actual idea um, of how much value that the research from body farms can be used for because there's just so few uh, results that are are quite invariable, it seems like. But yeah, basically they just think, so they've talked to one person um, whose name I'm having difficult to find, but basically she talks about how she's an advocate against body farms, and they talk about how when she's gone to visit them before, basically the researchers that will show her around kind of treat it more like a zoo, and that they're excited to show her kind of the different scenes, but I would say that's unfair to the researchers these people are obviously doing this their whole life or doing this not their whole life but you know for years at a time it's often phd students and postdoc students that are doing this for long periods of time and so they're desensitized to the dead bodies which good or bad it is what it is obviously if you're around something all the time and you're researching someone for again for potentially years at a time um, at least months um, then you're probably not going to have the same kind of response as someone seeing it for the first time and they might be quite excited because they want to tell people what the research is and why they think it's really interesting again they're spending heaps amount of time doing this research and, and, and wandering around there so they're not going to have the same response as someone to the outside but what i would also say is that most people have a deep respect for the bodies that are donated same as the bodies that are donated to science otherwise for anatomy classes and stuff like that it's always very clearly pointed out that this person has donated their body and you will have respect for it, you won't make jokes or do anything like that around someone or with someone's um, with someone's remains. And most of the time these, these bodies as well, at the end of the use in the science, are then given back to the family to then be buried on an actual plot housed in the correct way in accordance with the family's wishes. And like I said as well, the researcher down in Australia during her talk had talked about that she said they get so many people trying to donate. So the idea that you know people are going to stop donating their bodies to science for other research or other medical research and stuff like that because they're worried about going to a body farm is probably not really a thing. A lot of people see this as a very nice way to go where they're, you know, unfortunately, some of them are put in the trunks and stuff like that, but they're really still advancing science. And some people are, are left out on the ground where they think is a nicer way to go than be buried in a concrete box or to be um, taken apart on a medical table and stuff like that so it's 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 really and it's, it's a hard thing and i guess it is a very odd thing um and it's very bleak for people to be used that way um from an outside perspective but again it, it is helping signs and it is helping us identify and and catch people who are killers or identify how bodies got to where they are and kind of what happened um, so it, it is a really interesting thing and again body farms are, are still extremely rare There's I think only like I said only about six in the u.s. There's only one in Australia and this might be the first one in the UK um, So we'll see they're hoping to open it later this year. It sounds like um, The only information nature has was from a Freedom of information request um, And it sounds like it might be out of port and down which would make sense There's a bunch of forensic labs and stuff out there as well um, but we're not quite. They weren't sure, and they weren't saying where it was. They're obviously trying to be quite hush hush, hush, hush on it. They don't want people to find out about it too early and then get up in arms and and kind of freak out about it. Because there's a whole issue of people donating their body to science for use in a body farm, which I guess currently is illegal in England, or at least isn't legal somehow. There's no way for someone to do that, um, whereas they can donate it for other medical purposes or stuff like that. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. and I guess it sounds like they're trying to set up kind of the legal framework of how that goes down, um, as well as establishing a, an area, which would be used that and kind of set up, again, a legal framework for the location to be active. Um, yeah, so we'll see, uh, again, it's interesting, it's just a, a neat story that's coming out and it's hopefully something that would be catch on more so we can help, um, really push forensic science forward because there's a lot of issues with forensic science that some of it unfortunately just isn't scientific um and it seems like dna is really our best bet but then it seems to get over over relied upon um as well so yeah i think that's all for me today I talked for quite a long while so hopefully you enjoyed the show if you did check out my patreon which is at patreon.com scifiction Um, S-C-I-F-I-X-I-O-N, or check out my website, which is scifiction.com. Have a look. I've got some stories written up there and some other short stories and stuff as well. Have a look at that. Let me know what you think. Or follow me on Twitter. I'm McIntyre Science. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys next week. Bye.